worship you I can only imagine I can only imagine Surrounded by your glory What will my heart feel Will I dance for you, Jesus? Oh, and all of you be still Will I stand in your presence? Oh, to my knees will I fall, will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine, yeah, I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Oh, and all of you be still, will I stand in your presence? Or oh, to my knees will I fall, will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine, yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. I can only imagine I can only imagine I can only imagine I can only imagine when that day What a blessed day it'll be. I want you to be finding in your Bibles Psalm 122. Psalm 122, and we'll be directing your attention to one verse of Scripture and building our thoughts around it this morning. I notice some of you have moved from over here to over there. Those seats are comfortable, aren't they? But I forgot to tell you, those are rental seats building fund rental seats. Years ago in churches, they used to rent out the pews and whatever there. So uh, what you do before you leave, you look under your seat. It has an amount on there that you're to put in <laughs> as you leave. Only one of you has an empty seat where you don't have to pay anything. I want us for a few Sunday mornings to, uh, to direct our thoughts toward prophecy and whatever. I have not through the years spent a lot of my time preaching on prophecy. Uh, that has never really been my focus and whatever. That is not to mean that I do not try to follow it and I do not try to understand it and that I don't try to stay in touch with current events and how I think they relate to the Bible. But I want us for about two or three Sunday mornings just to look at what I think is the greatest sign that our Lord is going to return and that is the nation of Israel. If you really want to know what time it is on God's calendar, just look at Israel. That's all, you, that's all the sign that you need. That is all uh, the information you need. That is as certain of a sign that our Lord's coming is drawing nigh as any other you can think of. 
Now, I do believe this. We're not to be looking for signs. I believe, as one said, uh, we ought to be listening for the shout. But the Lord told us that there are certain things that we would see come to pass that would indicate to us that His coming was drawing nigh. And so I want us for a few Sunday mornings just to direct our thoughts to around the nation of Israel and what the Bible has to say and how about Israel in prophecy. I want you to stand as we honor the reading of His Word. And I would just say a word here. We've been having some problems with our computer that generates, runs the pictures on the screen. So it's been just shutting down. And so we couldn't get our person over here to work on this week. We'll get it fixed this week. So if it shuts down, uh, you know what is going on. It's not just that they fell asleep over there and fell over on the keyboard. <laughs> but uh, we've been having problems. We click a picture and then it just shuts down. So uh, maybe it'll stay up where you can get all the notes and things that we we'll put up there for you today. But I want you to look at Psalm 122. I want us to think today on this thought, the battle for Jerusalem. The battle for Jerusalem. There is a battle that has been waged for the city of Jerusalem, and there's a reason. I want you to look at Psalm 122, and I want you to notice verse 6, and we'll take this one verse of Scripture, and we'll build our thoughts around this text or draw our thoughts from the text. Notice what he said. Psalm 122, verse 6, David says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Now, will you read that verse of Scripture with me this morning? Psalm 122 and verse 6. Read it with me, if you would, please. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray. And this morning, we will think about the battle for Jerusalem. <clears throat> Our fathers, we come this morning. We have heard songs today that have pointed our hearts toward the future. We have been reminded, Lord, of your return. We have been reminded, Lord, of your second coming. And, Father, as we come to the Scriptures today, Father, I trust that you will remind us from your Word how near that coming is. Father, we believe you are sure to come, but even more, we believe that you are soon to come. So I pray now that today and for the next couple of Sundays, that, Lord, you would take our hearts and open them and let us see how near you are in coming. Let us be drawn to the truth of your word and may our hearts be transformed. And may we live in the blessed reality day by day by day that Jesus Christ is soon to come. So, Father, help us today. I yield myself to you. I pray, Lord, that you be in total charge of everything I say and everything I do. And I'll praise you for what you do in all of our hearts. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask these things. Amen. When the medieval map makers drew up the maps of the then known world, they placed the city of Jerusalem at the center of the world. If you were to go to Jerusalem today and visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you would find an inscription there that reads, This is the center of the earth. An ancient Jewish rabbi wrote, As the navel is set in the center of the human body, so is the land of Israel, the navel of the world. Situated in the center of the world and Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel. I submitted to you this morning that both the medieval mapmakers and the Jewish writer were correct 
to speak of Israel and Jerusalem as the center of the world. For the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel 5 and verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. But I would say unto you this morning that not only is Israel and Jerusalem the center of the world, they have also become the focus of the world and are at the center of the world's affairs and have been for many years and will continue to do so, and especially in the past couple of weeks. When you pick up your newspaper, the headlines have something to say about Israel and the Middle East. Each afternoon or each evening, the leading story on the news channels is about what is going on in the Middle East and what is going on in Israel. The question that I want to ask today and try to answer is, what is going on in Israel? Over the years, I have watched with interest the efforts that have been put forth to bring peace into the Middle East. I have listened to the talk shows over the past couple of weeks, and I've listened to what people are saying and, about, and the explanations they are giving about the situation that presently exists in the Middle East. And I am convinced that many of the so-called experts are missing what the real issue is in the Middle East. I say this at the very beginning, and then I'll explain a little bit later. The issue is not political. The issue is theological. You see, what is going on in Israel in the Middle East, to answer that in a simple and a straightforward answer, what is happening in the Middle East is a battle for Jerusalem. It is because of the events that have been unfolding in Israel and the attention that it is getting in the newspapers and the newscasts that I felt led to try to help you to understand a little bit better about what is going on and what is behind it. And let me say at the very beginning that my source of information is the Bible, the Word of God. Because I believe that the only way you can understand what is going on in the Middle East is to see what the Bible has to say about the situation. You see, the Bible is the foremost authority on the past and the present and the future of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. So if you really want to understand what is happening in the Middle East and understand what will happen, then the Bible must serve as your guide. I will say this and then get in the message. It would be impossible for me to say everything that should be said in just this one sermon. It's not a matter that I don't have time, but you don't have time. That's the real issue there. But however, I believe today that as we look at our text in Psalm 122, I believe we can form a basic understanding of what is happening. So are you with me today? Say amen. Follow me and let me just point out a few things from our text Psalm 122 and verse 6. The first one is this. I want you to notice the prayer, ask for Jerusalem. You see the prayer that is asked for Jerusalem. In most Bibles, you'll find as a heading to Psalm 122, this inscription, a song of degrees of David. What it does is indicate that David is the author of this psalm. It was David that established Jerusalem as the holy city of the Hebrew people when he took the city from the Jebusites. And in Psalm 122, as he writes of the beloved city, he requests prayer for Jerusalem. Now look at the prayer, and let me just point out a couple of things briefly about this prayer. For one thing, I find that what the prayer that David is requesting is a prayer for a special place. 
For you see, as you look in the Bible, you see that God says things about Jerusalem that He doesn't say about any other city. In Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, God calls Jerusalem the city of the great king. In Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 2, God calls Jerusalem the holy city. And in Psalm 46 and verse 4, God distinguishes the city from all other cities when he calls it the city of God. I want you to understand this this morning that the most important city in the world is not Washington, D.C. The most important city in the world is not New York City. The most important city in the world is not London, it is not Paris, it is not Tokyo. The most important city in the world is the city of Jerusalem. It is the city of the great king, it is the holy city, it is the city of God. And it is these characteristics that make it the most important city in the world, past, present, and future. But in Psalm 122, you notice that David spoke of the importance of the city to the Jewish people. For example, look in verse 4. You notice in verse 4 that he speaks of the spiritual significance of the city. He writes in verse 4 and he describes the place as whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord under the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. He is talking about the place of their worship the testimony of the Lord, the, uh, the, the holy place there, the commandments of God, the place where they worship, the temple, you might say. Jerusalem was the spiritual center for the, Jeru- for the Jewish people. Again, this was the place where they came annually to worship and to offer sacrifices. So in verse 4, he reminds them of the spiritual significance of the city of Jerusalem. But look in verse 5. He reminds them not only of the spiritual significance of the city, but the political significance of the city. For he said in verse 5, For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. What Washington, D.C. means to the United States, the city of Jerusalem meant and means to the Jewish people. It was in Jerusalem that Israel's king sat on the throne. It was from Jerusalem that justice was administered throughout the Jewish nation. So when David asked prayer for the city of Jerusalem, he is asking for prayer for a place that is special to himself. He is asking prayer for a place that is special to every Jew. And he's asking for prayer for a place that is special to God. It is prayer for a special place. But look at something else. It is not only prayer for a special place, but it is prayer with a specific purpose. I am mindful this morning that effective prayer is always prayer that has specific objects and subjects in mind. And when David asks for prayer, he's doing more than just asking the people to pray. He's asking them specifically to pray for Jerusalem. The word prayer that David uses there is a word that speaks of prayer and speaks of an earnestness in prayer and the kind of prayer that always has a specific request in mind. It is a word that would describe someone coming to God from the very depths of their heart and there is a particular matter they are bringing to God when they pray. That's what David is asking for when he says pray for Jerusalem. What you have is a king on his throne. And what you have is a national leader sending forth a plea, a plea that reaches us even today, pray for Jerusalem. He is asking specifically that specific prayer be offered for the city of Jerusalem. But even further, he's not only asking for prayer for Jerusalem, but he's even more specific. He says, pray 
for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, the name Jerusalem means city of shalom or the city of peace. And what David is doing in Psalm 122, verse 6, is asking that we pray for peace in the city of peace. So David now, as a national leader, is asking and pleading, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is the prayer, ask for Jerusalem. But his prayer leads me to a second thought, and that is this. Not only do you see in verse 6 the prayer, ask for Jerusalem, but you find in that prayer the peace absent in Jerusalem. David is saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He's asking for something, and the indication would be, here is something that is missing or will be missing. Therefore, I ask you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, let me say this. From a human perspective, if ever there was a city with an inappropriate name, it would be the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. Of all cities to name the city of peace, it'd be like the city of Philadelphia. You know what Philadelphia means? It means brotherly love. You talk about a city of brotherly love, but I encourage you to walk the streets at night by yourself and you'll find out how much brotherly love's in the city of Philadelphia. But he talks about Jerusalem, the city of peace. Throughout history, Jerusalem has been anything but a city of peace. Jerusalem has been a city that's had its share of glory, yes, but it is also a city that's had its share of grief. You might say that instead of being a city of tranquility, Jerusalem has been one largely of turmoil. So when David prays for the peace of Jerusalem, it is like he's looking through the eyes of God and he sees the turbulent future of his beloved city. Therefore, he requests prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, think about the peace that is absent in Jerusalem. And I said before you these two things. The first one is this. I want you to think with me about the story of Jerusalem's past turmoil. Think about Jerusalem in the past. Jerusalem, the city of peace, has known more war, has known more bloodshed, has known more tears and more terror than any city on the face of the earth. It has been conquered and reconquered by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Crusaders, and by the Ottomans, for example. In 587 B.C., and you read of this in the Bible, the city was captured by the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed. Many of the Jews were carried away in the Babylonian captivity. It would be 70 years before a remnant of Jews would return to the city. In A.D. 70, the Romans under Titus entered and ransacked the city and destroyed the second temple that had just been finished in the six years earlier, leaving only the western wall. And the western wall many times is referred to as the Welling Wall. It is said that when Titus entered the city and ransacked the city that so many Jews were slaughtered that their blood ran in the streets. In A.D. 313, Hadrian, a second century Roman emperor, once again invaded the city and he barred Jews from the city. Many Jews fled to Mediterranean ports only to be sold into slavery. In 1099, the crusaders stormed into the city under the sign of the cross. And once again, the streets ran blood as the crusaders slaughtered more than 40,000 people and set fire to mosques and synagogues. And one example of the crusaders' perverted religious crusade to claim the city for Christ, 969 Jewish men and women and children were herded into a synagogue and they were burned alive. 
For nearly 2,000 years, there was no nation of Israel. And Jews were largely scattered throughout the world. But then in 1948, Israel was once again established as a nation. But no sooner was Israel reborn than five Arab nations attacked Israel with the intention of pushing the Jews into the sea. And situated right in the heart of it, the whole affair was the city of Jerusalem. Since 1948, under the present, five wars have been fought in Israel. While the nation has greatly prospered, it has been the scene of constant strife and constant turmoil. And in most cases, Jerusalem has been at the heart of the strife and the turmoil. That's something about its past. But I want to bring you into the present. Not only the story of Jerusalem's past turmoil, but second of all, the source of Jerusalem's present turmoil. What's going on right now? In the present, things are as, as tense and as serious as they have been in many years. When we pick up our newspapers and turn on our TVs, we read reports of suicide bombers. We see images of Israeli soldiers moving throughout Palestine, Palestinian territories in their tanks. And the amount of news coverage of what is happening at the present is but one indication of how serious the strife and the turmoil is in Israel at the very present. But here's the question. What is behind the lack of peace in Jerusalem and Israel at the present? What's going on? Why is there no peace in Jerusalem? If you were to read the papers and listen to the newscasts, you would think that the present escalation of events in Israel is to be blamed solely on a series of Israeli actions. And I've listened over the past several weeks to different theories and different pundits giving out their propaganda and their spin of what is going on there. And I've heard one of the things, for example, one of the things that I've heard over and over again, somebody referring to, is Ariel Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount on September the 28, 2000. And they've spoken of that as the event that ignited the present escalation of violence in the Middle East. In fact, I read this week a report by Physicians for Human Rights of Boston is quoted as saying that the current crisis was ignited on September the 28th when Israel's Likud party leader, Ariel Sharon, visited the Temple Mount, a Jewish site sacred to both Jews and Muslims. But I want you to listen to me very carefully this morning. I submitted to you that the turmoil in Israel is not because of Ariel Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount in September of 2000. It goes back much further than that. And the real issue behind all the turmoil in the past and all the turmoil in the present, it goes back to two boys. And it goes back to two religions. For example, take your Bible and turn to Genesis 16. Will you follow me for a little bit? Will you, are you staying with me now? Just stay with me for a few minutes and I'll lead up to something. Look in Genesis 16. And while you're turning there, let me set the background for the verses that I want to point out to you. Abraham and Sarah were childless. But then God appeared to Abraham and he told him that he was going to give him a son. And he told him that he would be the father of a great nation and that his seed would multiply as the sands of the sea and the stars in the heavens. That was the promise God gave to him. But the problem began when the years began to pass and Abraham and Sarah had no children. So instead of waiting on God and letting God do things his own way and doing things in his own time, Sarah came up with the ideal of Abraham having a son by her servant, Hagar. You know the story. The result was a boy was born, and that boy was named Ishmael. Abraham now had a son, 
But it was not the son that God had promised as the chosen seed. Look in Genesis 16. Notice verse 11 and notice verse 12 at what God said to Hagar about her son Ishmael. Notice in verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child. This is Abraham's child. Thou shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael which means God that hears or God that heard. And that's explained in the next statement, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now notice, pay close attention to the next statements that God makes. Look in verse 12. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now, let me explain a little bit to help you to understand what God said about Ishmael in verse 12. God said that Ishmael would be a wild man. You underscore those words, wild man. They literally mean a wild ass or a wild donkey. One translated statement, he will be as free and wild as an untamed donkey. God also described how that he would fight with everyone. The Bible said against every man. And it also described how every man would fight with him. The Bible said every man's hand would be against him. In other words, God told Hagar, said, I'm going to give you a boy, and he's going to be a wild one. And he's going to be in trouble all the time. He's going to start fights. He's going to be in fights all of his life. What he was saying, God was simply saying, Ishmael would be a troublemaker causing problems and picking fights with everyone he was around. There was always somebody at school that we could have named Ishmael. Could I say amen right there? But notice God, what God said. But finally God said in verse 12 that he would dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Now by that statement, he simply meant that they, his brethren, of course the only brother he had was Isaac, so he's talking about Isaac and his descendants, that they would dwell together in the same land that they would live together in the same area. But take the verse as a whole. He said, what he was saying in verse 12 is, they would live together in hostility in the same land. One writer translated the statement, he will live in the presence of his, of, of his family. He will have conflicts with his relatives. Now that's the story of one boy. Now turn to Genesis 21. Let me give you the story of another boy. And Genesis chapter 21 in time, Abraham and Sarah would have a child, just like God said, the child that God promised. He had told them he'd give them a son. Well, they took things in their own hands, tried to uh, rush God's plan and fulfill God's will, but that was not the child. But now the child God promised is born. Notice in Genesis 21 in verse 1, the Bible said, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Now Isaac was the son that God had promised. And Isaac was the son that God had declared in Genesis 15, 4 would be the heir of Abraham. So here's what we have. We have, two, have one, we have a father that has two sons. We have
on that the nature God described, his nature that God described, begins to show itself. Genesis 21, 9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that is Ishmael, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Now look at that word, mocking there. What is being described in verse 9 is that one day Sarah saw Ishmael picking on Isaac. She looked out there and she saw Ishmael laughing at Isaac. She saw Ishmael picking on Isaac, teasing Isaac, and, and aggravating Isaac. See, what you have from the very beginning was strife. And may I add, it was strife that would be felt for the centuries to come. What am I talking about? From Isaac came the Jews, the Jewish people. And from Ishmael came the Arabs, the people that we now call the Palestinians. From the time of Ishmael, the Arabs and the Jews have been living in conflict with one another. Now, if you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East, and you want to know why there's turmoil in the Middle East, you've got to go back to these two boys. You know, I think about what Abraham and Sarah did. If there's any lesson in the Bible that teaches us how we ought to let God do His work His own way, by His own methods, in its own time, it's what's going on in the Middle East today. It all finds its root in a man and a wife that would not wait on God. But you've got to go back to these two boys. And when you go back to these two boys, you find in the very beginning two major sources of division. That's between the Israelis and the Palestinians that is at the heart of the conflict in the Middle East today. Jot these two things down. The first thing that you have, and I don't believe I have this on the screen, but the first thing is geographical. One of the major divisions today is geographical. And what I mean by that is this. Who owns the land? Who owns the land that is called Palestine? Both the Israelis and the Palestinians trace their lineage back to Abraham. Abraham was Ishmael's father. Abraham was Isaac's father. They traced their lineage back to Abraham. They were both the sons of Abraham. So the question is, who was and is the rightful heir? Who owns the land? Now, God promised Ishmael and Isaac that he would make great nations of them both. And, but God, listen to me carefully, but God made his covenant with Isaac the child of promise. And in so doing, the title to the land of Palestine was passed from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and so on. In short, the land belongs to Israel. And I want to just say this, and I'm going to waver a little bit. Israel's back in the land. 1948, they became a nation. And I want got news for you and anybody else. They're not leaving. God gave them the land. They have a divine title deed to the land. The land belongs to them. But there is that geographical division. But the second thing in which I really believe is at the heart of what is going on is not just that a geographical difference, but there is what is going on is theological. For you see, from these two boys came two religions. From Isaac came Judaism, the religion of the Jewish people. From Ishmael came Islam, the Islamic religion. In my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, and you don't have to agree with it. You have every right to be wrong, so I, I, you're welcome to do so. But in my opinion, this is the heart and the soul of the turmoil in the Middle East, past and present and future. It's the major reason for the conflict in the Middle East and is at the heart of the battle for Jerusalem. 
Now, we hear a lot about peace in the Middle East, and I have several reasons for believing there is never going to be peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace rules in the Middle East. And one of the reasons why I do not believe there would be peace in our lifetime or why we're on this earth is because of the differences in their religions. Now, you listen to me carefully this morning. No matter what the Arabs say about peace, their religion demands that they defeat both Jews and Christians. Islam's theology insists that Islam triumph over everything else. That's why if you were to visit an Arabic city, the Islamic prayer tower is the highest point in that settlement because Muslims believe that it's the will of Allah to rule the world. And may I say this, when they talk about Allah, they're not talking about the same God that we're worshiping today. You see, the Islamic religion looks upon everyone that is not a Muslim as an infidel. Do you remember when Osama bin Laden, you remember seeing him on the news and the, the little videotape that he sent in referring to the United States as infidels? You see, Muslim, the, the, the Islamic religion looks upon anyone that is not a Muslim as an infidel. Islamic law also stipulates that to fulfill Muhammad's task, every infidel domain must be considered a territory of war. You want to know what happened on September the 11th? In 2001, what happened on September the 11th was due to America's support of Israel and the teachings of the Islamic religion. That's the root of what happened on September the 11th. Muslims believe there can be no peace with Christians or Jews or any non-Islamic people. And if that peace must be made, only a truce is permissible. And that, and I quote, for a maximum of 10 years as an expedient to hone our swords, to wet our blood, and to strengthen our will, end quote. I fully agree with Jan Willem van der Hoven of the director of the International Christian Zionist Center and when he said, and I quote, because of the humanistic and mainly secular mindset of the West and also of the major part of Israel's population, the following will be difficult to accept and digest, and that is this. The chief reason for the Middle East conflict is not so much a secular political one, but a religious Islamic one, end quote. Furthermore, at the heart of the Islamic Jihad, the holy war is Jerusalem and specifically the control of the Temple Mount. When we talk about the Temple Mount, we're talking about the spot where Solomon and Herod's temple stood. It's a site that is both holy to Muslims and to Jews. At the present, the Temple Mount is under Muslim control. On it sets the Al-Qaeda mosque where it is believed that Mohammed descended or ascended into heaven. And one of the reasons that Sharon's visit to the holy site was so protested by the Muslims is they believed that his presence there would defile the Islamic holy site. But what is happening in Israel? What is going on in Israel? May I say it again? It is a battle for Jerusalem. Do you remember in July of 2000 when Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat came together at Camp David with President Clinton in an effort to reach a peace agreement. Do you remember that? Before both men was a copy of a peace agreement that had been years in the making. Israel had made remarkable concessions. In fact, again, this is my opinion. This is my opinion. I preface what I say. This is my opinion. And again, you don't have to agree with it. You always have the right to be wrong. But in my opinion... Uh, I believe it's one of the reasons why Barack lost the elections because of the, the measure of the concessions that he made. 
In those concessions, Israel would relinquish nearly all the West Bank occupied in the 1967 war, including the strategic Jordan Valley. Also, they would set up joint patrols with Palestinian security forces and as well recognize the right of Palestinian refugees to return to the state of Israel and to accept a number of refugees into Israel. The state of Israel, that was new. In return, the Palestinians would demilitarize their land. They would allow Israel to maintain three reinforced battalions and other forces on the West Bank within those military compounds. The Israelis would also operate three early warning stations and three air defense units on the West Bank until May of 2000 or until peace agreements had been achieved between Israel and other Arab nations. That's where they had got down to. And then President Clinton, you remember in the news, they came out and everybody's talking about how they were going back and forth and how worried he looked and how uh, to an impasse everything came. This is where they'd got. And then Clinton asked this question. What about Jerusalem? Barack was willing to make concessions never before considered by an Israeli prime minister. He did not want to divide the city, but he was willing to consider the ideal of a neighborhood swap, exchanging Palestinian neighborhoods for Israeli ones. And so when Clinton took the ideal to Arafat, the Palestinian leader blew up. And he and his delegation were further enraged over a casual suggestion that Barack had made that in exchange for giving the Palestinians de facto control of the Temple Mount, the Israelis could build a small synagogue on the northeast corner of the holy site. Now, you Bible prophecy students, you know the implication of that. And Arafat glared at Clinton and he said, these arguments are explosives and will set off massive fires in the region. And he looked at him and said, do you want me to throw the region into a new age of religious conflicts. I say that to say this. What's going on in Israel today is a battle for Jerusalem. And even more particularly, it's a battle for a section of Jerusalem. It's a battle for what we call the Temple Mount. It all goes back to two boys and the two religions that came out of it and who says they have the right and who says that they're going to rule and reign. That's what's going on. That's at the heart of everything that is happening. Now, let me give you one, in fi one final thing. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. One final thing. You look at Psalm 122, verse 6, you not only see the prayer, ask for Jerusalem, which would indicate a peace absent in Jerusalem, but you find a third thing, and that's the prosperity associated with Jerusalem. He asked us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Look at Psalm 122 and verse 6. They shall prosper that love thee. Underline that statement in your Bible. Underline that statement. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Again, let me, this is my opinion. America has been blessed of God for many reasons. I believe America has been blessed of God because it was founded on Christian principles. You can't divorce it from our nation's history. I don't care what the historian uh, revisionists may do, our history books, you cannot divorce it from Americans' history. This nation was built on Christian principles and on Christian ideals. You can't, you can't divorce that from it. And that's one of the reasons we have been blessed of God. But I'll tell you another reason why we've been blessed of God. Since 1948, we, America, has been a strong supporter and a defender of the nation of Israel. I believe the Bible. 
And our text tells us that those who love Jerusalem will prosper. I, I don't care what anybody says. It will be a sad day in this nation's history if we ever turn our back on the nation of Israel. It bothers me when President Bush is telling Israel what to do. I say this, nobody has a right to tell the United States what to do and the United States doesn't have any right to tell Israel what to do. It'll be a sad day when this nation ever turns their back on the nation of Israel. As Christians and as an Americans, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, let me sum it all up by saying this. Make it all relevant to this place. I've been talking about what is going on in the Middle East. And I'll enlarge on this in the next couple of weeks. But more than anything else, more than what I've already described, going back to two boys and the two religions that came out of those two boys, I'm more than anything else, what is really happening in the Middle East right now, what is really going on right now is the setting of the stage, preparing and setting events in order for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anything else, the growth of the Islamic religion and the flexing of their muscles in the past few years and the escalation of tension and war in the land of Israel is but the setting of the stage for events that are going to transpire after Jesus comes. So all of these things unfolding before our very eyes is telling us and loudly announcing to us Jesus Christ is soon to come. I believe the Bible, don't you? The Bible tells me my Lord will come. And the Bible tells me that he's soon to come. When I pick up my newspaper, it tells me Jesus is coming soon. When I watch channel 14 and channel 37 and 59 and 78 and watch what all they have to say about what's going on in Israel, they're all telling me. And they're loudly announcing to every one of us that Jesus Christ is soon to come. Oh, listen to me. They're getting ready over there. God getting this thing ready, and everything is coming and just falling right into place. No, there will be no peace. There will no be peace in Israel until Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes. But blessed be God, He is coming, and everything says He's soon to come. Can I get an amen there? For that reason, I would say to everybody in this room this morning, as a Christian, we ought to be serious about living for God. We ought to be serious about doing God's will. We ought to be serious about serving God. We ought to be serious about being faithful to God. We ought to be serious about honoring God in our life. He is soon to come. We're living in the end time. It's almost at the stroke of midnight. If you're going to live for God, you've got to live for Him now. If you're going to serve God, now's the time to serve Him. If you're going to please God, please Him now. And I would say to those that are unsaved, realize that your opportunity to be saved is coming to an end. Be, be, be aware this morning that the Lord is soon to come and you must be ready. If you're going to be saved, you ought to be saved today. For who knows, Jesus Christ could come today. Who knows, Jesus Christ could come. You say, preacher, preacher's been saying that for years. I've been talking about Israel and everybody else and talking about things and how it's all going on and saying all that saying me, Jesus soon to come. That's been years ago. He still hasn't come. I want you to listen to me. Jesus described how, as you saw, he talked about the beginning of the end. In Matthew 24, I believe, verse 5 and 6, which he uses a phrase there, travailing in birth. And the ideal is of birth pains. And as a woman, as her pains get closer, and they get closer, they come from 8 minutes, 7 minutes, 6 minutes, 5 minutes, 4 minutes, and then it's time for the baby to be born. 
1948, in my opinion, the birth pains began. And it was eight minutes, it's down to seven minutes, six minutes, five minutes. And to be right honest with you, I believe we're right down to two and three minutes. It's time to get her into the delivery room for the baby's about to be born. What I'm saying to you is, friend, look up. Jesus Christ is coming again. For that reason, you need to be saved. Let's all stand to our feet, please. What is happening in the Middle East? When you turn on your news and watch it, just remember, it goes back to two boys. It goes back to two religions. But even more so, it is the hand of God setting the stage for the return of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to sing in just a moment. And I, as, as I think about the second coming, I said a moment ago, to you as a believer, in light of the re Lord's return, well, live for God, serve God. The Lord has had such a little place in your life. You've left Him out. You've never taken the Lord seriously. It's been so long since you did. And I encourage you to, to give your life to God. Now's the time. Now's the time to get serious about, get, to be serious about serving God and living for the Lord. Now's the time to give your life to Him. For you that are in this building today that do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, my motive is not to frighten you my motive is to enlighten you and my motive is to tell you he is soon to come if he is not soon to come then then I am totally misunderstanding the Bible and many many others I am totally misunderstanding what God is saying but I don't think I am I think the Bible is very clear and I think the Bible if you listen to it and read it and look at it honestly and, 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 and look at it from God's point of view. It's telling us that Jesus Christ is soon to come. For that reason, young person, you ought to be saved. You ought to come today. You ought to get up out of your seat and come today and, and just walk down here and somebody will be here and they'll meet you and they'll take the Bible, the Word of God, and they'll show you how you can know you're ready when Jesus comes. I don't know what is going to happen in the Middle East. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know if Israel will begin to withdraw their tanks. They most likely will. I don't know if it will ease the tensions. It'll be something else to ignite it. And there's all different things. Of course, there's the Palestinians, there's the Israelis, and, and, and they both had fought for a lot of things going on. But I'll tell you, be honest with you, be honest with you 100%, what you see happening is God setting the stage. Next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about God's prophetic clock. I'll take you back to the Old Testament and show you a prophecy that involved Israel. And we'll look one Sunday about what is the Temple Mount? What are we talking about? What's the big deal about the Temple Mount? We'll look at those things. But all of them, all of them, tell us. He's soon to come. I want you to come. We invite you to come this morning. Our, uh, my wife is here. Staff is here. Pastors are here. They'll be here to meet you, to pray with you. If you're here today and you're unsaved, get up out of your seat and come. You're here today and you're not living for God, get up out of your seat and come. The Lord is leading you to become a part of Temple Baptist Church. We invite you to come. Whatever the reason, whatever the purpose, we can pray with you about anything. You may want to come and pray for someone, some of your family, some of your loved ones that are unsaved. You may want to come and just get on your knees and say, Dear Lord, I do believe you're soon to come. I don't want my children, I don't want my loved ones to be left behind. I don't want them to die in their sins and go to hell. I want them to go to heaven with me one day. You may want to just come and pray for them. Whatever, whatever the purpose, come. Father, in Jesus' name. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for how your word tells us and interprets the events that we live in today and even the events that are to come. 
May we hear, may we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, I want you to come all across the building. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. You come right now in Jesus' name. Come. Yes. Out of your seat and come. Yes. Others. Wash it for me. Come. Yes. Bless you, Sherry. Yes, folks. Others, God is speaking. Jesus is coming soon. You come. Do business with the Lord today. Do so. Yes. Read my soul. Amen. Amen. Yes. Sing another stanza. Come, Jesus' name. Do like these others come. Do so. Sing it with him. Pray, and we'll sing another stanza. It's your opportunity to come as we sing. Yes. Yes. Thank you. you. May be seated. We'll ask the camp family to come. They're going to dedicate their little one to the Lord today. So as they come, you can be seated.
Heather Camp. We're real proud of them and what the Lord's done for them, blessing them with little Holly Renee. They have several of their family here. Would you stand? Some are, of course, members and some are visiting. All their family. Let's welcome them and let them know we appreciate them. Bless you. Our Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for Larry and Heather, their love for you, their faithfulness to you, and their desire to offer their children as a gift to you. You bless them, and so they come today to acknowledge and express their gratitude by saying this is a gift from you, and we give the gift back to you. So we give this little girl to you today, ask you to bless her, to watch over a little life, make her something special for you, keep her heart soft to the things of the Lord, May there come the day that she'll open her heart and accept Christ. So we give her to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. She looks like mama. Praise God. Amen. Just remain standing there. Good to have Laura Groves. Laura, she got saved and she's coming to Father Lord and Believers Baptism. You're glad for that? Say amen. And good to have Darlene Cole coming to be with us. Let's welcome Darlene into our church. Appreciate all of you being here. Let's all stand. Be back tonight. And we're going to be thinking about 10 canned Christians. So you want to be here. Come by and, and let these know how much we appreciate them. You're dismissed. Shake hands and fellowship as you leave. <laughs>